Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18 with Pastor John King. You know what today is? You guys are, man, that's pretty good. Thought I had, you know, kind of something over on you, but I guess I didn't. Not at least a couple of you. The last day in Galatians, that's right. We're going to finish up Galatians. We're going to be in verses of chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 11 through 18. A final message from Paul in Galatians. Uh, last week we, we picked up on the, you know, we learned some, uh, some good things last week. We learned that uh, there is this thing we call the law of Christ. Paul refers to it. And really that's, fall, that's love and that's caring for others' burdens. That's an active you know, application of your faith, if you will, uh, to carry others' burdens, especially when it comes to confronting others about sin in their life. Uh, we also talked about the relationship with the teachers of the word and the congregations, you know, and how important that is. And finally, we talked about the law of the harvest, you know, the simple fact that whatever seed you plant in the ground, whatever seed you plant spiritually into your heart, that you will harvest. However, if you spend all your life and all your time sowing into your flesh and your fleshly desires, well, that you will harvest as well. And so we, we covered that and we learned that, you know, it's good for us to be generous to others, uh, to take the focus off of ourselves to be generous. This week, first of all, Paul's going to start out with a very important message. You'll see why. We're going to cover briefly, uh, he's going to kind of recap the whole message that he has through Galatians. And he's going to talk about compromised religion. You know, two bad things. First of all, religion, dead religion, and then having to compromise with it. At, for the, uh, you know, on the, on the backs of others, if you will. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about another rule. It's called the rule of salvation. He, he, he says it's what it really is, is your walk in the Lord. And it, it should be evident in our lives that there has been a permanent change in our life as we learn to walk under the rule of salvation. And then finally, he's going to close with the identification with Christ. And in Paul's case, uh, we know that he had the actual marks of a one who follows Christ because he was persecuted so heavily for it. So let's read our passage. We start in verse 11. It says, Paul writes, he goes, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. We're going to talk about that, but, you know, what's the big deal about that? We'll see here in a minute. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these false teachers would compel you to be circumcised. Only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation, on the other hand. Verse 16, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. 
And he concludes, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you uh, for this great letter of encouragement, this great letter of correction to our hearts, Lord. We thank you for the time we've been able to spend and all the things that you've given us through that, Lord. And I pray that it's been profitable for righteousness and uh, right living unto you and, and to understand our right standing with you, that we have a, maybe a new aspect on what grace means, knowing that we cannot work for our salvation, but knowing that you also have a work for us as brothers and sisters in the Lord, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can take it one step at a time in this life that you've given us, that you've called us to. So, Father, as we conclude the message today, I just pray that we will take away the things that you desire for us to know. And I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. So he starts out, Paul starts out with a very uh, important message. He says, See with the large letters that I have written. And if you didn't know anything about, uh, you hadn't been in the Bible and you read that, you'd think, What is the big deal? The fact that you were able to write with large letters. He says, and I've written it with my own hand. Now, why does that stand out to his hearers, to the readers of that day who would read this letter? Why, again, why such a big deal? Well, in that day, in the ancient world, and for many centuries, actually, it was common for ancient writers to verbally dictate their letters with the written correspondence through the hand of a Amanusis, or amanuensis, excuse me, amanuensis is the proper way to say that silly word that I don't say very often, obviously. But in any event, it's a scribe. It's somebody who takes notes. Romans was dictated to Paul, or by Paul, to Tertius, if you remember the book of Romans. And Paul is showing to them how important the conclusion is. He's want, he wants to write himself and in one case you know in a sense it's sort of like an authentication for the fact that yes Paul did write this letter to us remember you couldn't FaceTime in those days okay you couldn't just call somebody up things were, were different then and so it would have been a very common practice and Paul we see it in other times in Paul's letters where he he gives a salutation he goes I Paul write this uh, salutation with my own hand so it would be, you know, for us it may seem strange for him to say it, but for them it would be, okay, yeah, he means business. You know, I mean, this is an important message. Let's pay attention. Let's take to heart what he's had to say. Many commentators and scholars also point out the fact that Paul uh, possibly had poor eyesight. In fact, very poor eyesight. And he mentioned it earlier in, in the letter about his eyesight. And so, you know, he would have been forced maybe maybe to use large letters because that's all he could do you know he had just a big giant crayon he could write on this thing um, others would say because of his injuries you know we we're going to look at some of the persecution that he endured today because of his injuries it's possible that he couldn't write very well nonetheless um, for us he would say okay what is the modern way well the modern way of communicating to get people's attention is often to use all caps which is not allowed to be done in certain circumstances right Remember when we first started using email? If you worked at a place, and one of the first things your human resources people would tell you is, do not send emails with all caps. Why? Well, because people feel like you're yelling at them, right? So I'm like, man, I, I, you know, anyway. Uh, 
Same with bold type. So, you know, this is the world. It's a weird world we live in. But, you know, Paul is he's getting his point across. He's bringing his message. Anyway, moving on. Verses 12 through 13. We're going to talk about compromised religion. Again, like I said, those are two bad things. First is compromise and second is religion. Those are bad. Those are not good things when it comes to the gospel message. And Paul, he's going to expose the real reason why these false teachers are so, you know, gung-ho about circumcision. They're so gung-ho about forcing these poor Galatians. You know, they've, they've crept into the church. They've taken over the teaching in the churches in Galatia, which is why Paul wrote this letter in the, to begin with, because they're feeding them a bunch of baloney about religion. They're telling them, look, if you want to be a good Christian, a true Christian, you need to start becoming a little more Jewish, and you need to come under this law. And Paul's like, you know, this is nonsense. But he's now going to really, he's going to kind of give the final volley, if you will, the final rebuttal to all the terrible things they're doing in that church. And he goes right to the very end of this letter. He says there, he's going to expose the real reason uh, about circumcision. First of all, they seek recognition on the backs of their converts. They seek recognition on the backs of their converts. And they're also willing to, to compromise the true gospel in the process. So they have a compromised faith. Look at verse 12. It says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, um, these would compel you to be circumcised. So two things. First of all, they just want to make a show of you. They want to make a show of you Galatians that by obeying what they've called them back to the law to do, by putting them back under the yoke of bondage, they could actually brag about it. They could look good in the eyes of some. So, you know, it's like they also, not only are they're not just like requesting that they do this, they're compelling them to do it. What does that mean? It means to necessitate or to drive to. It would be like me standing up here every single Sunday until you left the church telling you something that wasn't biblical and actually desiring that you would do it and trying to force my will upon you. That's what these teachers are doing. And so they want to make a good impression one reason behind the false teacher's insistence that a true Christian had to endure the rite of circumcision was, again, to look good in front of the Jews and the Roman society that they were living in. We're going we're gonna to learn that, you know, the Jewish religion, as much as they were uh, under the control of the Roman government and, and oppressed, as long as they stayed within their boundaries and paid tribute to Caesar and didn't misbehave, well, the, Jew, the, the Romans would allow them to exist. So they were like an approved religion. But this new way, this new Christianity was, you know, in the eyes of everybody hated it, okay? The Romans were like, no, you worship Caesar. And the Jews were like, what are you talking about, Messiah? He isn't coming yet. So they were persecuted. The early church was persecuted. I mean, we know they put to Jesus to death. They put our Lord and Savior, God the Son, to death on a cross, and so we're going to be reminded of that. And that's Paul's. He continually reminds us. He says, I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm not living this life. I'm not in this ministry to make a good impression on society and to please the religious people. And so Paul is, you know, he's going on and he's really exposing them. He's trying to get these people to understand. He says, another reason is that so that they won't suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. 
Again, that offense, the cross of Christ. So this is a way for them to water down the truth. To bring these churches back into line under the umbrella of Judaism. And still accept, you know, okay, we'll have Jesus, but look, we're going to keep these laws as well. He says, for the cross of Christ. The, the Latin word for cross is crux. And in that society, that would have been a very, you know, that's the type of things you don't say in public. It was such a brutal form of execution. So the false teachers were trying to pressure the Galatians to conform with the official religion that was approved by the Roman government. Paul, as we said, he preached Christ and him crucified. He said that many times. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Notice how Paul, he, he explains to the Corinthian church, and it would be similar for all of us to hear that you know, Paul didn't come with fancy words or great oratory skills. Look what he says. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wasn't going to get mired down in theological arguments and opinions he wasn't going to be pleasing man. No, he's going to say, look, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message and the result of his crucifixion and what it provides for you and I for eternal life and our eternal destiny. He says in three, he says, in fact, I was with you in weakness, in fear and in much trembling. You can talk to anybody that does a public ministry, especially street ministry. They could have been doing it for 40 years and they're still scared to death to be out there to tell it, spread the gospel. Here it's a little different. I feel like I'm among family, okay? I, you guys are home. We're at home right now. We're in family time. You know, everybody that speaks publicly always get nervous, of course. But some people been, have been doing it. And Paul admits, he says, I was with you in weakness. I was in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. You know, the big thing in Greece at the time, they were, you know, this was the pinnacle of human society, if you will, in language, in the Western culture, at least. The Greek language, if you've ever tried to study it, you realize it's not so easy. And basic Bible Greek is called Koine Greek. But they had this classical Greek, and they would just go on and on, and people would you know, pay money and, and be in attendance to hear great orators speak and use rhetoric, you know, these, these uh, devices of speech. Uh, it, it was something, and Paul's like, look, I'm not like that at all. And Paul was a highly educated man, by the way. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He wasn't uneducated at all. But he, he boiled it down to this simple message. He says, not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of, listen, the spirit and of power. You see, any force, anything that's worth anything for eternity comes by the spirit of God. When you're talking about our faith in Christ and the spirit of God that indwells us. He says, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men. The wisdom of men. But in the power of God. The power of God. So Paul has, you know, he's, we see in his letters, he's consistent. But what's particularly appalling about this, this situation is that these false teachers, their primary motivation was not to win people to Christ. 
They didn't get the memo from Jesus about going forth through all the nations. They were not interested in winning people to Christ. They wanted to pressure people to conform to legalism, and they wanted it for two reasons. To boast about their converts, as we've already said, and to avoid persecution. Need I say any more about what's happening in our society? And, I, and look, rein me in if I get a little carried away, okay? You can do that. However which way you do it, I don't know. I'll get the look from somebody. You see what's happening in our society, and, you know, we have the very great fortune of living in a country that was founded on biblical principles. Don't let anybody try to tell you that that's not the case. The Constitution and everything about it, not perfect, okay? It was written by men who believed in the Bible, who served, some were Christians, not all were Christians, most of them were. And so it's founded on Judeo-Christian values, and that is why God has allowed our nation to be as great as it's been, despite what everybody's being told, because that's a lie. And you guys know it, you hear it all the time, so I just want to say a lot of it comes because the church hasn't been standing up. I haven't been standing up, and I would venture to guess that all of us here are guilty of not being... Uh, forthright in our faith. We've, we've been hiding in the church in some respects. Now, look, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to be painting with a broad brush. I don't know each and every one of your personal walk with the Lord. I don't know where God sends you and what you do. So don't take offense to what I say. Because we know in the end, you know, it's politics and man, they're not going to solve the problems of the world. But what we have in this nation is worth preserving, if possible. We got young kids you know, so whatever the world's trying to tell us, because you can see what happens here is that society's pressure on the Galatians and these false teachers that came in to move their agenda forward was to cave into society, cave into the government, and make themselves look good in the meantime, at the same time. And we see that happening in our churches today. And so here at Calvary Chapel, we continue to teach God's word, every bit of it, all of it. Does that make us better than anybody else? No, no. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> We're vile sinners, each and every one of us. When Paul, in his last days, in his final letters, he said, I'm the chief of sinners, okay? So we don't think ourselves better than anybody, but we come under our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his instruction for life. And we want to encourage one another to do that here. Anyway, verse 13, he says, now he talks about the hypocrisy. He says, for even those who are circumcised, in other words, these false Jewish false teachers that are following Judaism, even though not, for not even those who are circumcised can keep the law. We've, if, if one thing settled in this letter is that nobody can keep the entire law of God because you know, as soon as you break one little commandment, one part, even in your mind, you've broken them all. And so he says, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. These were false teachers. But the thing about legalism is when it's put upon others, you know, we're, we're okay if, if, we, if we go in that direction, we're okay to put legalistic demands on others even if we don't keep them. And that's hypocrisy. We've all heard the saying, do as I say and not as I do. Parents may have said that. I don't, I may have said it. But it's wrong. It's funny, but it's wrong. 
It says, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You know, they want to be able to, you know, have this literally a visible, uh, you know, mark. And I don't even want to get too carried away with that either. That they could say, look what we made them do, those, those dirty Gentiles, those filthy heathen. We brought them back under the law. Aren't we wonderful? It's creepy is what it is. They want to win people to their cause, not to Christ. You see that in the cults, at, at, you know, in the extreme. But you also see it sometimes in the modern church growth movement. You know, everything about America is bigger and better and mega and huge and happy and massive and plenty to have and plenty to, you know, it's all about big. And that hasn't left the church. The church has given itself over to that in many cases. And I'm not saying big churches are evil or bad. I'm not saying that. But the motivation, the business models that they use become larger than the true calling. And they become a problem. John 12, 43 speaks of hypocrisy. It says, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. But Matthew, Jesus' words, Matthew 10, 38 Jesus said, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You know, that should, that should speak to all of our hearts. Now, is it wrong to declare that a church is growing? Of course not. Of course it's not. It's, you know, we, we would like to grow. We would like the Lord to add to our numbers. But you know whose job that is? The Lord's job. Okay? It's the Lord's job. I'm not going to pressure you guys to grow our church. I think by word of mouth, you might say, hey, you might invite somebody to come to church here. If you, you call this your church home, you feel like you're being fed here. You feel like this is your home. And I know that happens a lot. But I'm not going to pressure you. And I know you're not going to pressure me to grow the church just so we can appeal to our flesh, just so we can count nickels and noses, as they say. I'm not going to do that. But is it wrong for a church that is growing? Of course not. It's by the means of growth. It's the means of growth and who is truly being glorified. Uh, Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, while it is certainly not wrong to want to win people to Christ or to see the work of the Lord increase, we, we definitely want to see that. Amen. It is definitely wrong to want these blessings for the glory of man. That's the thing. We want to see more people sharing in our ministries, not so that we can count people, but because people count. Because people count. But we must be careful not to use people to further our own selfish programs for our own glorification. You know, the Lord's not going to share his glory with anybody. That's his glory. <laughs> you know, he reigns and rules in glory. So boasting is not something that he expects from us. Boasting about our accomplishments, especially when it comes to the ministry of the Lord is not the type of thing he likes to hear from us. You know, here at Calvary Chapel, <clears throat> my desire is to continue in the footsteps of those that I admire. For instance, Pastor Chuck Smith. I admire him greatly. I've only met, I only met him once before he passed away, but I still listen to his teachings. And he always had a heart to lead the fellowship with a couple of things. One was simplicity. You know, simply teaching the word simply. And the other, and I think most important of all, was love. Chuck Smith loved the congregation. And he came out of a, 
of a denomination that was very, pre they pressured. They pressured all their pastors when they'd get together at their annual meetings, and every pastor would have to stand up and raise their hand and give an account for how many converts they won, how big their churches were, how they were growing, all this stuff. And Chuck's, finally, he heard from the Lord, and he said, you know, I believe I'm called to feed the sheep. I believe I'm called to teach God's word and let the work of the Lord be done by those who are being equipped to do it. Some are evangelists. Some will spread the gospel. And, and you know, we know the Calvary Chapel movement, is a, it's, a, it's a footnote in history. It's a footnote in modern history. But he would say to his congregation, and I will say to you, the desire is that you would be the best fed and the best loved church here in our area at Calvary Chapel. That's my heart's desire. I, you know, I'm still learning how to do that. And I think you're, you guys are learning it as well. But that's our desire. Anyway, moving on. Next, we're going to talk, we're going to see contrast. You know, Paul, he points out the faults of the false teachers and the, and the, the methods that he sees fault with. But then he brings in a contrast, the rule of salvation. He's going to talk now about the things that matter, you know, peace and mercy, having that peace with God so that you can experience God's mercy. And it's such an important thing. In contrast to the false teachers, Paul now gives a very strong exhortation about the proper motivation one should have concerning their walk with Christ. He's already let everyone know where he stands concerning this thing, works righteousness. You know, the Jesus plus salvation. Jesus plus this book. Jesus plus these works is how I get saved. That's false, not true. And he's already covered that. But now he exhorts believers to follow the rule of salvation, their walk, their walk of salvation, in order to experience something known as peace and mercy that we have before God. Verse 14, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul is going to make a very bold assertion. That word boast is, is translated glory. That I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just any cross, because that was a, unfortunately, a very common form of public execution in Christ's day. Now this is the cross of Jesus Christ. The one who died on the cross, was put in the grave, rose to life, has been ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. That cross associated with Jesus Christ. And that's where true liberty comes for all believers. It comes right back to the cross. Earlier in Galatians 2.20, Paul made the amazing, you know, for, for many it's a Bible, a memory verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, uh, who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, so he's continuing his walk, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a, you can boast on those things. Galatians 5.24, a couple weeks ago, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We talked about the war within, the battle that goes on, and how we're called to put that stuff 
to kill that stuff, you know. Somebody's got to die for this, for life to live. 2 Corinthians 10, 17. But he who glories, or he who boasts, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. One writer put it this way. The only thing God likes to hear us boast about is what Christ has done for us. The only thing that God, that pleases God, that God, you know, he hears us say a lot of things, unfortunately. And because of his grace and mercy. But he likes to hear us boast, but not in anything but Christ himself. So Paul's letting his hearers know, the ones who are reading his letter, both then and now 2,000 years later, you're still reading the letters. Paul is letting his hearers know the absolute sincere commitment he has towards his calling as an apostle. He references the cross of Jesus in a way that would be shocking to polite society during that time. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, the historian F.F. Bruce, he says this, the word crux, which is Latin for cross, was unmentionable in polite Roman society. Even when one was being condemned to death by crucifixion, the sentence used an archaic formula which served as sort of a euphemism, a softening. They would soften the, the sentence by saying, arbori infelici suspendito, which means hang him on the unlucky tree. That's how they would say it in polite society. We wear, lots of us wear jewelry, wear a crucifix around our neck. But in that day, uh, if you were to take the context of what the cross meant to that people in that day, they'd be horrified to see that. It would be like us wearing an electric chair or a gas chamber or a lethal injection gurney around our neck. And so, you know, in that day, Paul was very bold, which is why he was persecuted so much. They didn't like what he had to say. And then he goes on. He says, he says uh, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The wor you know, again, he's using this word crucified in his language. He's a, he's, a, he's a real Jesus freak. You know, he's really out there. You remember when you first got saved and you told all your family, you know, hey, I, I just came to Jesus. And they shook their heads, rolled their eyes, some of them. They said, that's good for you, son. <laughs> Some of you experienced that. Some of you had the blessing of growing up in a Christian home where it was celebrated. But not everybody. Not everybody celebrated about their faith with their loved ones and their closest relatives. He says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What he means, the world and it's, you know, he's died to the values of the world. The selfishness, the ambition, and the pride. You know, those are the big things, really. You could go on and on. He's died to that. You know, this world is now, you know, dead to me, in other words, because of the cross. Uh, Henry Morris said this. He said, Paul's acceptance of the crucified Christ was not simply an interesting episode. Oh, that's interesting. No, no, no. It was the death of a whole way of life and a rising up of a new mode of existence. You know, it's radical when you give your life to the Lord, whether it's a radical uh, deliverance from the Lord, from a, a very, very sin highly sinful life, 
or just somebody who's just come to know the Lord and they want Jesus to reign in their heart. They want to know the Lord and they want to be a part of his kingdom. And they've been raised in a godly home or they come to church. And, you know, but it's a radical change. No matter what, it's a radical change. Everything changes. And he says in verse 15, he goes, look, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Now he's starting to separate what's not important because to the legalist, everything becomes important. Everything has to be just right. And he says it doesn't avail anything. It has no force. It doesn't move the needle one iota towards your salvation is what he's saying. It cannot define your status as a believer or transform you into a believer. But you're a new creation. Now he says, but a new creation. In other words, on the other hand, a new creation is uh, such a, a contrast to these religious works. A new creation or a new creature. This is the man or the woman who has been regenerated through Christ. Through Jesus' death, resurrection, and the power of his Holy Spirit that is now dwelling within you. You're a new creation. You say, but I, every time I look in the mirror, I still look the same. In fact, I look worse as the years go by. Some of you say, speak for yourself, Pastor John. But it's the heart that matters, right? It's the heart that matters. And then he says, verse 16, as many as walk according to this rule. Now, you might say, well, wait, I thought we stopped living by rules. <laughs> Actually, that's a whole other message. Uh, we won't go into that. What he means by rule is a principle or a standard. Just because we have liberty in Christ does not mean that we don't esteem for higher standards in our walk with him. We don't throw out the Ten Commandments. We don't throw out all that. We, we actually glory in him when we desire to want to keep them, when we desire not to lie, when we desire not to steal, when we're not constantly being motivated about covetousness or lustful thoughts and adultery and things like that. We want a glory in God because he's given us a new heart and new mind. So we're not against the law. We're not against a higher principle or standard. And so he says, as many as walk. In other words, you've been saved. Now you're walking. Your way of life is different. He says, the result is, and you know it for yourself, peace and mercy. Peace and mercy be upon them. It's not some abstract thought or wonderful notion or idea. No, it actually dwells upon you. You actually walk in peace because you know the mercy of God. Why? Why did you need to make peace with God? Because you were born under Adam and you were born in sin. And so your unforgiven sin made us God's enemies, whether you like it or not. And when you came to faith in Christ, and will you come to faith in Christ, you will see that you will have the peace of God because he wants to make peace with you first and foremost. And after that, you're going to see and realize the depth of his mercy, if you could, if you think you could measure it. You're going to see it beyond all estimation of what you have. When you, especially when you look at your life, you look at the life you may have lived before you knew Jesus, and you realize he's forgiven, he's washed you clean of all that. You're now a new creation. 2 Timothy 3.16, he says to Timothy, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always 
in every way, in every way, the Lord be with you all. So important for us. His peace and his mercy. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness unto his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had, had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You receive something, you obtain something that you didn't even pay for. Next week, we're going to begin our uh, study of Ephesians. We're going to continue in the Paul's epistles, the, uh, the, the epistles of uh, the writings of Paul. We're going to start in the, to the book of Ephesians. And during uh, our study in the book of Ephesians, we're going to look very much more closely at God's rich mercy towards us as sinners. So Paul explains to the Galatians, he says, how the rule of salvation brings a right relationship with God, known as peace and mercy. Do you have that? Do you have a right relationship with God? Can you stand before God when you get before God in your private time and while you're all by yourself? Can you stand before God and sense his peace and his mercy? Do you have sins that need to be asked forgiveness for? Maybe that's why you don't have peace. Because he'll give it to you. Is that you? Am I speaking to those who have been given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ here today in this church? Has everyone come to salvation? Has everyone made a true profession of faith? Has everyone received his love and grace? It's here for you. The extension has been put forth. All you have to do is call out to him. Paul finish, finishes that sentence with an interesting phrase back to our text. And he says, peace and grace or peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. Now, why does he separate Israel, the Israel of God? Well, we, we here at Calvary Chapel believe that Paul has a plan, or excuse me, God has a plan for the nation Israel that has yet to unfold. It will take place during the tribulation. That's what we believe here. Romans 9 through 11 details all the things that the Lord has set aside for the nation Israel. Does that mean that all Israelis, all Jews automatically go to heaven? No, they have to come through faith in Jesus Christ. But God has a prophetic plan for the nation Israel. And for some reason, Paul says, and the nation Israel, the Israel of God. He doesn't say it very often. Just as God has made a way that none should perish, but all should come to repentance... God also maintains his plans for the future Israel of God. You can read it for yourself, Romans 9 through 11. It's clear as day. I like what uh, one writer did. You know, if you come away, what we're trying to understand here in a simple way is... What does the cross mean to a true believer? So if you're taking notes, I like what this writer shared. First of all, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we say our Lord, we, you know, it's like a possessive uh, word. That means that you know the person of the cross. You know the person of the cross. And that's Jesus Christ. You know, in this letter alone, Paul references Jesus 45 times. So, you know, what does the cross mean? Well, first of all, I know the person of the cross. 
It's not just any cross. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Second, he says, God forbid that I should boast. He makes an exception. He says, he knows the power of the cross. So you know the person of the cross, number one, and number two, you know the power of the cross. Before his conversion, the cross represented weakness and shame. It was repulsive to society. After he got saved, the cross of Christ became the foundation of Paul's message. Jesus died for our sins, and that is the foundation for our message. So I know the person of the cross, and I know the power of the cross, but I also know the purpose of the cross. And that's to make you and I, new believers, whenever, as you come to conversion, that's to make us a new creation. So the person of the cross, Jesus Christ, the power of the cross, what it represents, and the purpose of the cross, to be a new creation. Now that the law has been fulfilled in Christ, the new covenant has been established and the door was wide open for everyone, not just the Jews, not just the chosen people of Israel, but all the entire world was open, door was open for them to come to the cross, to come to Jesus. Jews and Gentiles each come to him for salvation and gets what you become. You become the body of Christ. You become the bride of Christ, collectively. That's what we are. Finally, Paul, uh, he, he finishes the, the, the letter very abruptly. You know, it's almost as though he's had enough of being attacked and being called a false prophet or a false apostle. And look what he says in verse 17. He says, from now on, let no one trouble me. In other words, in the future, he's basically saying, get off my back. Paul ends the letter abruptly. He will have no more attacks upon his ministry nor upon the gospel of Christ. And sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes if you're, if you're being persecuted for your faith because you're vocal about your faith and you're telling others about your faith, sometimes you just have to say, okay, that's it. I'm not going to allow you to slander my Lord. I'm not going to allow you to slander the gospel message anymore. Basically, Paul's telling this church, you need to repent and you need to get rid of the false teachers that have come among you. You need to throw them out. And then he, he goes on. He, you know, he's not done there. He says, for I bear the, on my body, in my body, I bear the marks of the Lord Jesus. He was, he, now this is Paul. Okay, don't, don't think that you have to go out and get stoned <laughs> or beaten. Don't think that. Don't think that. Don't think that so, to call yourself a true Christian. Sorry, James. Remember, you've got to lead a song. The false teachers have accused Paul of being a phony if you look at 2 Corinthians 11, we're almost done, folks. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27. Again, he, Paul, in this particular case, he's responding to those who criticize him. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I re received 40 stripes minus one. They, always, they had to stop it at 39 in case they miscount. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, day, a night and a day I have been in the deep, 
in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren, weariness and toil. He was often sleepless, you see that. He was often hungry and thirsty. He would fast and he would, he would be in cold and nakedness. He, would, he went through it. Now, just in being whipped alone, if you do the math, apart from the other marks that he received, the marks of Christ, he took 195 lashes on his body. Now, it would be a cheap shot from me to you for me to say, do you have any prominent marks on your body? That would be a cheap shot, so I'm not going to do it. But we are exhorted for Jesus to let our light shine. He says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We're all called to show, if you were, if you were to boast, which we talked about last week, you know, if I were to boast... I'd know that I was right with the Lord because I'm walking with him and I'm serving him. And he closes in verse 18. He says, but brethren, always a good way, that's always a good thing to hear from another believer, you know, that they're affirming your faith, not that you live for their approval, but from the apostle, he still considered them believers. And he said, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The grace of the Lord. That's goodwill. That's loving kindness that comes from our Lord and Savior. And, you know, when you say with your spirit, that's that rational understanding that you have. You may not be able to explain it very well. It may be simply that you know that you know that you know that you sit under His grace. That you have peace with Him. Because of His great mercy. And so he closes with amen, which means may it be fulfilled. You know, when you and I say amen to something, usually we're affirming may it be fulfilled. So Paul began his letter with the same encouragement that he ends with, and that's the word grace. Verse 3 of chapter 1, he opened the letter, he said, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So from end to end of this wonderful short little letter that we just covered over the last six months, uh, not even that long, Paul opens with grace and he closes with grace. As we get ready to take communion, you know, we get to actually now look further into the elements. But as we continue on, I just want to say to each of you that my prayer for you is that our study of Galatians has found you in the exact place that God intended. The exact place that God intended. Maybe you've been drifting away from Him. You know, we all have our ups and downs in our walk with the Lord. Maybe you've decided that your way back to the Lord is to become more worthy through works, righteousness, through legalism. Maybe somebody's telling you that, that it's not true. Or maybe you realize that his love, maybe you have a deeper understanding, a renewed understanding of his grace. Gosh, I hope so. I know I need that. Maybe you need a reminder of what's important and what's worth standing up for in your faith. 
how salvation in Christ comes by grace alone through faith alone and that no works can secure my entry into heaven into the kingdom as new creatures we are called to be equipped to walk in the spirit without the need for compromise we're being controlled by the Holy Spirit yeah we're going to stumble we're going to struggle but yeah we can still be bold to proclaim and live a true gospel life amen, amen. amen. let's bow our heads as we prefer, prepare for communion Father we thank you for our time together Lord we thank you for Lord, I pray an indelible mark that you've placed in our heart and soul through your words. Once again, your words are so wonderful for us, whether they sting or whether they bite us or, you know, seemingly come against us. We know that, Lord, your word will change our hearts and change our minds. And so Lord, we, we will continue to walk this race, to run this race and to, to walk this life of faith with your help always it's always needed we don't walk alone no matter what you stick closer than a brother so thank you Lord for seeing us through thank you Lord for teaching us speaking to our hearts and Lord as we prepare for communion now we ask Lord that you would give us this moment this time this brief respite from the noise from the world help us to look within our hearts and minds if there's something that we need to be made right that needs to be made right between us and another believer here those among us Lord put it on our hearts to do what's right for those that can't be reached right now let us purpose to make things right with them if that be the case Give us, Lord, the grace to partake if we can get past our bitterness and our anger, our frustration with others. Give us the grace, Lord, to partake in these elements to celebrate your death and your return. We ask that you go before us now. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.